to Mark chapter 5. We are starting today right at verse 21. Mark is about to provide us a uh, demonstration in contrast. Now, from what I know theologically about God, from what we know about sovereignty and providence and God's purpose, knowing what we know about the fact that all God's ways are known to him from the beginning, knowing all of that, I contend that there are no accidents, there are no mistakes in God's universe. That being the case, what we're about to read is laid out in a very specific order on purpose. Mark is teaching us something And he's teaching it by way of contrast. We're going to see people exercise faith. At this point, Mark has been telling us about God's absolute sovereignty and Christ's absolute authority and how Christ is walking around telling waves to stop and telling wind to quit and telling disease to leave and telling demons and devils to depart. He's showing his absolute authority. Now, having shown that, the question is, how do people react to that? And so Mark is now going to give us a couple demonstrations of people reacting to Christ. And some are going to react in faith. Some are going to react in unbelief, disfaith. Ah, pistis. 
the word pistis, the Greek word for faith with the alpha negative in front of it. Apistis is exactly what we're going to see demonstrated. Lack of faith, no faith, anti-faith. This is kind of the close of the second big section of the book of Mark. And after this morning and what we see this morning, we're going to see Jesus kind of pull back from his public ministry and spend more time teaching his apostles telling his apostles what it is he expects them to carry on and to expect his death, to know that he's going to be back in three days, and this is the teaching that they're going to carry out to the world after that. He starts concentrating on that, and we'll get into that next week, but recognize that this is also, importantly, the end of his public ministry, and so Mark would write about it under the heading of faith. Do people have faith? Now let's talk for just a moment about what faith is. You know that I have defined faith over and over again as standing on God's word and reckoning it as more true than your circumstances. Because oftentimes your circumstances will appear to be contrary to the word of God. Like the word of God says that God loved you before the foundation of the world, wrote your name down in the Lamb's Book of Life, has every intention of redeeming you utterly, has already justified you, has already glorified you. How many of you right now feel real glorified? Okay, so no. Okay, so what's true? The word of God, that you are already glorified in the mind and counsel of God, or is it more true how you feel about that? Okay, well, then you have to bring your thinking in league with what the Bible actually says. You stand on the word of God and say, that's more true than my circumstances, my feelings, what I think, the intellect of human beings, the worldview of the whole world. That's all less trustworthy than the word of God. Okay, that's what faith is. Faith is not, get this right, faith is not Believing whatever you want to believe. We live in a very pluralistic society where you're not allowed to tell anybody they're wrong. And if somebody wants to believe that when you die, your soul goes to a garage in Buffalo, you're not allowed to say, you know, that's really whack. You're, <laughs> you're not supposed to believe that. You're not allowed to tell anybody, no, no, actually you're wrong because the word of God says things and it says them really clearly and it spells out its own story and its own theology and it's not vague and what you believe really doesn't matter eternally unless it aligns with what the Bible actually says. So faith is a confidence, a trust in the fact that God is doing through Christ the very thing that God said he's going to do in his work. Now, since the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, the Christian faith is identified by the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Salvation by grace through faith, through that confidence that Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection has accomplished everything necessary for our full and complete redemption and salvation. That's faith. That's Christian faith. But at this point, he hasn't been to the cross yet. And so the content of the faith of these people 
is now just in Christ as Messiah, Christ as the Son of God, Christ as the one that was predicted by all the prophets, that this one, this Jesus of Nazareth, is in fact the very one that the prophets have all been talking about. And he's on the planet now, and he's doing miracles, and he's demonstrating his authority in order to prove that he is the one to come. Believe that, that's faith. You get it? In other words, faith throughout the Bible is believing whatever God has revealed thus far. The content of Abraham's faith was very different than the content of Micah's faith. Micah's faith is in the finished work of Christ. Abraham's faith was, God said to him, uh, you and Sarah are going to have a kid. Abraham believed God. The word is aman. He amend God. And God counted that to him as righteousness. God justified him on the basis of the fact that he believed God when God spoke. So what is the content of his faith? He believed the word of God when he heard it. God's word was, you're going to have a child. He believed it. God reckoned that for faith and gave him righteousness in exchange. So the content of the faith is whatever God has revealed up until now. So now Christ is on the planet. And as he's walking around on the planet doing these miracles, demonstrating that he is the son of God, the content of faith that Christ is looking for is the belief that he is the son of God, that these miracles have come directly from God. In contrast, the Pharisees have said these miracles come from Beelzebub. These miracles come from the devil. Okay, that would be disfaith. That would be a lack of faith. Because you've attributed these miracles, these signs, you've attributed them to the wrong source, not to God. The purpose of these miracles is to demonstrate that Christ is exactly who he said he is and therefore the son of God. That's why it's so important that Mark includes, and you're going to see it coming up in a couple chapters, him asking Peter, who do men say that I am? He's looking for that response, you are the son of God. That's who you are. Because that's what he's demonstrating. That's what he's proving. I am the very son of God in shoe leather walking on the planet right now. And I keep proving it to you. Who do men say I am? Well, men say that you're Elijah or one of the prophets or Jeremiah. And he says, well, then who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. Well, that's what he's after. That's what he's looking for. And he didn't come up with it on his own. Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood didn't teach you this, but my father in heaven showed you this. So that's an important element. Now, where does faith come from? According to Jesus, faith in Christ comes from God. Amen. Okay, so the Bible says in Hebrews 12 that Jesus is the author and the finisher of faith. Author. The one who institutes it, the one who created it, the one who designed it. He is the instigator of faith, but not only that, he's the finisher of faith. He continues the faith so that if you have faith in Christ through your whole life, he is the one who instigated that and continued it. Ephesians 2.8 says, by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourself, it is a gift of God. So the salvation, the grace, and the faith are all gifts from God. 
So the Bible says this over and over again, that you, of your own human capability, can't stir up sufficient faith to obligate God to save you. But the God who is saving you will give you, will grant you, will author in you the faith that he's then going to exchange for righteousness so that you are then justified eternally because of your faith. See how it works? It always redounds to God's glory. It always goes back to God instituting it. It always goes back to God's plan. Now, all of that that I just laid out, all those introductory comments, all matter as we look at what Mark is about to write because we're going to see demonstrations of faith and demonstrations of a lack of faith. Now, Jairus works in the temple. He's apparently a layman, not a Levite who does some of the administrative work in the temple, but that means he's part of the community of Jews. And his daughter, his 12-year-old daughter, is dying. And he hears that Jesus heals people. And he's going to ask Jesus, come to my house, come to where my daughter is, and come heal her. Now, previous to this, according to both Matthew and Luke, Mark doesn't mention it, There had been a Roman centurion who had a servant who was paralyzed who had come to Jesus and who had said, if you just speak the word, my servant's going to be healed. Jesus was going to go with him, was going to go to where the servant was. And the centurion stops him and says, look, I'm in command. I know what it's like to have control. I know what it's like to have authority. I tell men, go here and they go. I tell men, do this, and they do it. All you have to do is speak the word, and my servant's going to be healed. And Jesus ended up saying, I haven't seen faith like that in all of Israel. Okay, Jairus isn't there yet. He's not to the centurion point. He's to the point of, come with me to where my daughter is, and come and heal my daughter. Well, as they're taking the trip to his house to where the dying daughter is, just before he gets word that his daughter is now dead, just before that happens, a woman in the crowd shows extraordinary faith. And Jesus takes the time to point it out, which means Jairus saw it. He takes the time to point out the faith of that woman because he knows The child's about to die. And when the news comes that the daughter is dead, and they say, well, then don't disturb the teacher anymore. He doesn't have to come to the house anymore. Let him go back to whatever he was doing because she's dead. That's the end of it. Jesus turns to Jairus and says, believe. Have faith. You just saw it. You just saw the demonstration of faith. And you saw how I heal based on on that connection of faith that I institute in people to demonstrate that I am who I am. You've just seen all that. Believe. Be believing. And then Jesus goes and heals the child. So we see these magnificent demonstrations of faith, and then chapter 6 begins with Jesus goes among his own people, and his own people start saying, well, we know him. We know his mom. We know his dad. We know his brothers. They're with us. We know him. And they don't believe him. 
And as a consequence, he doesn't do miracles among them. So that's what we're about to look at, this contrast between faith that results in miracles that demonstrate that Christ is who he said he is versus people who are blinded, people who don't believe, and how Jesus leaves them in their unbelief and doesn't do the miracles that would prove that he is the Son of God. Do you see it? Do you see the contrast? Yes. Do you see the flow of the story? Because I began by saying nothing here is by accident. These things are written down in this order on purpose so that we can see that we need to have the constant, consistent, regular faith that Christ is who he said he is. And even then when we have that faith, he's the one who authored it, who instituted it, who sustained it, who gave it to us as a gift. It's all him from beginning to end. He's the alpha, he's the omega, he's the beginning, he's the end. The whole of it is about him. And that's the whole reason that he walked around doing miracles was just to demonstrate it's me. It's about me. I'm the very son of God. Who else could do this? All right, so let's dig into the text. We're in Mark 5, starting at 21. And when Jesus had crossed over again, he had crossed over the Sea of Galilee. Now he's come back. By coming back, he's coming back into the region that he began his ministry in, where some of the local folk know him. And there was a great multitude gathered about him. Again, everywhere he went. Great multitudes of people. It wasn't just Jesus walking around with 12 dusty guys. With fishermen and tax collectors going, yeah, we're a small group. We're going to turn the world upside down. What we see is everywhere he went, there were throngs, there were crowds, there were groups, which of course there would be. He's walking around doing miracles. Of course there are people coming to him. He's feeding 3,000 at a shot. Of course there's people following him. And there's also people trying to make him the king of Israel, because after all, they believe that's what Messiah is going to do. That's why Messiah came. He's the best king ever. He's the king that gives us bread and fishes every day, miraculously. He grabs a fish, takes money out of its mouth, and pays our taxes. This is the best king ever. And then he dies. And they think, well, okay, never mind. We backed the wrong horse. Apparently, he wasn't the king. And then three days later, he's back. Well, now you've really got yourself a major king. You can't even kill our king. And he gives us food. And he gives us money. And what a great king this guy is. And he befuddles everybody and leaves the planet. So, of course, there's throngs around him. Of course, there's huge crowds, big multitudes around him. So he stayed by the seashore. And one of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up and upon seeing him fell at his feet. That's a demonstration of worship. That's a demonstration of you're the authority and I'm not. That's a sign of humility before the one who is conquering, the one who's in charge. And he entreated him earnestly saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her 
She will get well and live. That was his confidence. That was his belief based on the miracles that Jesus had already done. Remember that before he went over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, he had been in this very region doing miracles. And we read that the fame about him had spread. And then you hear he's back. He's come back across the sea. He's in our region again. Of course, everybody's going to throng to them. And having heard about Jesus, Jairus comes to him and says, come with me. Come to where my daughter is. Lay your hands on her that she may get well and live. So Jesus went off with him. And a great multitude was following him and pressing in on him. You have to assume with that number of people that he was getting jostled around a lot. Because in a minute, he's going to say, who touched me? And his disciples say, um, everyone, <laughs> look at the crowd. So they're jostling him around. They're going with him. They're heading toward Jairus' house. They're all moving with him. Verse 25 says, and a woman who had, the King James says, an issue of blood, the NASB says a hemorrhage for 12 years. Across the board, commentators say that this was apparently a menstrual problem that she had. Because for 12 years, she couldn't stop the flow of blood. If it had been an open wound and she was bleeding from it, well, okay, bandage that up. You can stop the bleeding. But she had an internal hemorrhaging problem. And she had spent all her money going to doctors and just trying to get well. Now, think about it for a moment. If I bleed a little bit, yesterday I bled a little bit, by the way, because my cat decided to use my left arm to launch off of. And her back claws went right. I have a Band-Aid right now on my arm. I bled a little bit, and I felt woozy. <laughs> the loss of blood. No, you got to know that when you lose blood, you're also iron deficient. And you feel really, really bad. She had to have been feeling terrible, having no energy, having no iron in her system. And, and yet, despite that, this woman who had had a hemorrhage for 12 years had endured much at the hands of physicians and had spent all that she had, all the money she had, all went to doctors saying, just help me. And none of them could. She had spent all that she had and was not helped at all. But rather, it had grown worse. After hearing about Jesus, okay, let me add another element here. Where does faith come from? Where is the, what is the methodology that produces faith in people according to the Bible? Faith, according to the Bible, comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of God. So again, Hearing the word of God, believing the word of God. She heard about Jesus. She believed about Jesus. She had faith. She had faith in Jesus. So after hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him, which had to be rough. She had to be pushing her way through. This poor emaciated woman was so desperate to get to Jesus because she believed, if I can just touch the very hem of his garment, that would be enough to heal me. So she pushes her way through the crowd and touched his cloak. 
For she thought, if I just touch his garment, I shall get well. Okay, now hold on. There was a blind guy who had been blind for 30 years. And the apostles of Jesus wanted to lay some kind of blame. They wanted to understand why this man had been blind for his whole life. And they were determined that someone had to have caused it. So they asked Jesus, who's to blame here? Him or his parents? Were they cursed with a blind child or was he cursed with blindness because of something he did? Of course, being in that he was born blind, I don't know what he could have done in the womb that would be so bad that God went, well, that's it. Now you're blind. So they wanted to know. They wanted a cause. For what reason was he born blind? And Jesus' answer was, it's neither his parents nor him. He was born blind so that I could work the miracles of God, so that I could do the wonders of God. In other words, this man had lived for 30 years in this state of blindness just so that when Jesus got on the planet, he'd have somebody to heal. That was the whole purpose, the whole function of this man's life and this man's curse. And his blindness was all the result of God making sure in advance sovereignly that there was going to be somebody there that was blind for Jesus to heal. That's really, really sovereign. Okay, now knowing that, why was this woman sick? Why did she have this issue of blood? Because Jesus was going to pass her way. And there had to be a demonstration of who he was. There had to be a demonstration that he was the very son of God. Because she has faith. And we've already concluded that Jesus is the author and finisher of faith. We've already concluded that faith is a gift. So if that's the case, then she heard about Jesus and she believed Jesus, but that was also from Jesus. So she went to Jesus and she touched Jesus. Now, knowing all that, we can understand the conversation that follows. She thought, if I can just touch his garment, I will get well. And immediately the flow of her blood dried up. And she felt it in her body that she was healed of her affliction. I think it's interesting that Mark creates another little contrast. That she could feel in her body that she was healed. At the same time, Jesus felt in his body that virtue left him. And Jesus, perceiving in himself, King James says, virtue or that power had proceeded out of him and had gone forth, turned around to the crowd because she was behind him. He turns around and says, who touched me? And his disciples, of course, say, verse 31, you see the multitude pressing in on you and you say, who touched me? Everybody touched you. And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. I think that Jesus was asking this question not for information. Nothing ever occurred to him. I think he was asking the question the same way that God asked Adam, where are you? God knew where Adam was. He was just making sure that Adam knew where Adam was. And Adam had to admit I'm here, I'm hiding from you. I heard you coming, fig leaves, hiding. I think when he turned around and said, who touched me? 
He was making sure that that woman had to admit, I'm it. I touched you. I'm the one. I had the faith. Jesus knows it. Jesus is the author of her faith. Jesus is the one who inspired her to come to him. But now he wants her to admit who he is and what he has accomplished. That's the whole point of these miracles. But the woman, fearing and trembling, yeah, as you would be, if you touched him and you were immediately healed and you could feel it in your body and he turns around and goes, who are you? You're going to be like, I'm scared. That's what I am, okay? I'm trembling. I'm fearful. I'm reverent at this moment. I'm in awe of you. That's essentially what the word means, to be struck with awe. By the way, awestruck is a great word. And awesome, what a great word. For a while, it was trendy to say that things were just awesome. Oh, awesome. Oh, that's awesome. I had a hot dog this morning. It was awesome. No, it wasn't. It didn't fill you with awe. She was dumbstruck with awe over him. So she came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. That's what he wanted. The confession. Lay it out. I know you have a sickness. And now you're healed. And now you know it. Why? Because who am I? I'm the son of God. That's why you're healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. So she never had that affliction again, apparently. You're healed of it now. Now, the word of faith people have gotten a hold of that phrase, your faith has made you well, and have decided that this whole story is about that phrase. And they'll tell you, now you rev up your faith, and then you go obligate God to heal you. You go to God and get your faith all revved up, and then you go visit Benny Hinn, and then he'll knock you down, and then you'll be healed based on your faith. But what if you don't get healed? What if you, there are lots of people, millions of people through the years who have gone to faith healers, didn't get healed. Why not? The faith healers will say to them, you didn't have enough faith. In other words, they blame the sick people. They blame the desperate people and tell them you didn't get healed and it's your fault. You don't have enough faith. That's not the way God works. That's not the way Christ works. There are several demonstrations in the Bible, like the blind man who I mentioned a few moments ago, who didn't know who Christ was and wasn't looking for him. When he was brought before the council and they asked him, who healed you? He says, I don't know. I haven't laid eyes on him. No pun. He said, I don't know. Later, he's in the temple. He's never seen Jesus, remember? He's in the temple. Jesus walks up to him. Okay, how much faith did that blind guy have? How much faith did he demonstrate? How much did he obligate God by his faith? None, not at all. What about the man by the pool of Bethesda? Jesus walks up and says, would you be healed? Where was his faith? His faith was in an angel stirring up the water. And then he said, whoever gets down into the water first gets healed. And I'm never there because I'm lame. I got nobody to carry me down into the water. What was his expectation? He thought maybe Jesus, looking healthy, would carry him to the water. Jesus says, pick up your bed and walk. 
He does it because of the authority of Jesus. And the man demonstrated zero faith. He was looking for somebody to get him into the water. Jesus has the authority and the power. So here's the thing I'm trying to tell you. It was not the woman's faith that caused Jesus to heal her. Her faith was a gift from Jesus that served as the conduit that brought her to Jesus so that he could demonstrate who he was as the Son of God. He's the author. He's the finisher. He's the instigator. He did it all from beginning to end. She simply exercised the faith he gave her in going to him and being healed. And in that context, Jesus can say, your faith made you well. Because your faith, the content of your faith, is me. And because you believe in me, that's why you're well. I'm the healer. But while he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official, Jairus, saying, your daughter's dead. Don't trouble the teacher anymore. Okay, so they've given up. Okay, the 12-year-old girl, she's dead. And since she died, that's final, that's finished. So why don't you just release Jesus? Let him go back to whatever he was doing because, well, she's dead. And Jesus, having just demonstrated his miraculous ability to heal, to do the thing that human beings can't do, that no doctors, no experts, no amount of money could heal this woman, but he healed her instantly with just a touch. He's demonstrated all of that to Jairus. And so he turns after hearing that the girl is dead, but Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, do not be afraid, only believe. Have faith. You know who I am. You've seen it. But Jairus, like I said, wasn't quite where the centurion was. He wasn't at the point of, look, you've got all the power, just speak, and she's going to be okay. He said, come with us. They're traveling to her. I don't think that's a mistake. I think Jesus could have healed her immediately if he had wanted to. He knows who she is and where she is. He could have spoken a word at that moment, and she'd have been healed. He could have said to Jairus, go home. She's fine. But he didn't. He took his time. He traveled to the house. He had a conversation with a woman. Why? So the girl would die. So that there was time enough for the girl to pass. Why? So he could go there and raise her from the dead. Why? To prove that he is who he says he is. It always goes back to that. Always. Don't be afraid. Only believe. Trust me. And he allowed no one to follow with him. He stopped the crowd except for Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the synagogue official and he beheld a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing. You have to know that in the Middle East, there were actually these people who were known as professional mourners. That's what they did for a living. I'm sorry that on career day, nobody told me that that was an option. <laughs> but, but these people actually got paid based on 
based on how many vials they could fill with tears, okay? And so they would come. When, when you knew that somebody was dying, you would hire people because the louder the commotion, the louder the wailing, the more crying, the more valuable the person was. And so he's an official in the temple. That means he's got a bit of money and stuff. There's some people hired to really show the grief that this family has over their daughter dying. So there's this great commotion going on when Jesus walks in. People loudly weeping and wailing. And he entered in and he said to them, why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died but is asleep. What's the difference between dead and asleep? Hmm? Well, the main difference is if you're asleep, you'll wake up any time. Very good. Dead is dead. Sleep wakes up. So Jesus said, yeah, you think she's dead. I think she's asleep. Why could he say that? Because she's going to wake up. I'm going to wake her up. I'm here. I'm the prince of life. I have all the power and authority. I'm the judge of the quick and the dead. I'm going to wake her up. Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. So putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions, Peter, John, and James, and they entered the room where the child was, and taking the child by the hand, he spoke to her in Aramaic, he says, Talitha kum, which then Mark, knowing that not everyone in his audience, since he's got a large Gentile audience he's writing to, he's going to know that they don't speak Aramaic, and so he translates for us, which is very helpful, which translated means little girl, I say to you, arise. So he's speaking to a dead girl and saying, little girl, get up. Okay, here's a good question. How much faith did the girl have? None. None. He did not walk in and say, if you'll make me Lord and Savior, I can get you up off that deathbed. When he spoke to Lazarus, how much faith did Lazarus demonstrate? There'd be none. Notice he also was very specific about who he said to get up. I think this is a, an interesting element of how Jesus talks to dead people. When he talked to Lazarus, he said, Lazarus, come forth. Because Lazarus was in a tomb, which means there's probably other dead people in there. If he had just said, come forth, it would have been like the zombie apocalypse. There would have been all these... All these dead people would have come out. Instead, he said, Lazarus, come forth. Very specific. Notice that Jesus knows people. He knows who they are. He knows their name. He calls them. He quickens them. He brings them to life. It's the exact same way today. The world is dead spiritually. That's what we're told. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. That's basic Pauline theology. We're not fairly alive, doing the best we can, kind of limping. We didn't just stub our toe. We're, we're dead because of our trespasses and sins, and Christ has to make us alive. And how does he do it? Generally, does he just say, hey, whosoever will live? No. No, he says to specific people, Todd, 
live. Josiah, live. It's a specific call. It's the call of God to the specific people whose names he's written down since before the foundation of the world. Jesus does the same thing here. He says it to her, little girl. Talitha Kum, little girl, I say to you, arise. And there's Mark's use of the word immediately again, and I think a really good use of it here. And immediately the girl rose and began to walk or she was 12 years old, and immediately they were completely astounded, says the NASB. Again, they were awestruck. Of course they were. They've seen her dead. That's why they're causing a commotion and loudly weeping and crying into vials, because she's dead. Jesus shows up, not dead anymore. 12-year-old girl up and walking around. And so Jesus gives them orders to give her some food to demonstrate that she's really genuinely healthy and alive. She's not just alive and kind of bedraggled. She's not alive but needs a nap. She's alive and hungry, vital, healthy. And he gave them strict orders, it says, that they wouldn't tell anyone about this. He gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. And he said that something should be given to her to eat. That's the end of chapter 5. Now, here's the contrast. This so far, the end of chapter 5, faith, 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 faith. Jesus is just moving. The story, according to Mark, is just faith to faith to faith to faith. Now he's going to run into people who have no faith. And we're going to see an enormous contrast that I don't think Mark accidentally stumbled into. I think he was trying to demonstrate to us the difference between the miracles Jesus just did in faith, by faith, through faith, and the fact that he does no miracles among those who have no faith. Chapter 6, verse 1. And he went out from there, and he came into his own hometown... And his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And the many listeners were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him and such miracles as these performed by his hands? Now, we can assume from everything else we know, like the Sermon on the Mount and everything else, that when he went into the synagogue and began teaching, he wasn't teaching Moses. He wasn't in there telling them to follow the law. Instead, he was saying something on the order of, you've heard it said, but I say. He was always contrasting himself with the old covenant and making himself the new lawgiver of the new covenant. So much so that people were astonished and said, where does he get this authority? Where does he get this teaching? So it's plain that he was not teaching the same thing that they would typically hear in the synagogue. What do you typically hear in the synagogue? You hear Moses. You hear the Pentateuch. You hear all that stuff, the law, legal, you hear that stuff. He was saying something different because what we've seen of Jesus consistently is that he did not teach, get this right, he did not teach an ethic 
separate from himself. He never taught anything and said, do this to be saved. He said, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. You come through me to get to the Father. Moses' teaching was always do stuff. Do these things to be righteous before God. He didn't rubber stamp that. He didn't walk into the synagogue and say, keep doing stuff. Instead, he made himself, as I keep saying, he made himself the center of the religious universe and said, what you think of me, what you say about me, how you come to me determines your eternity. Okay, that would be the kind of teaching that people would say, now, where does he get this? Where does he get these things? But then he keeps doing these miracles. And these miracles testify to what he's saying about himself. He's making himself out to be the Messiah, the long-awaited prophetic Messiah. And it's hard to disagree because he keeps doing these miracles. So they say, where does he get these things? And what is this wisdom that's given to him? And such miracles as these performed at his hands. But then the unbelievers would follow it up by having heard it, having seen it, and knowing it, they would then talk themselves out of it. Remember, Mark has already told us about the different kinds of seed and the different kind of soil it fell on. And there was a kind of seed or a kind of soil that seed would fall on. And then just as quickly, Satan would come and snatch away what little they had. Here they are. They see it. They know it. They say it. This is a new teaching. This is a unique thing. He has authority. He has power. He's even doing miracles. But we know him. So it can't be him. And that's going to be their excuse. Everybody, get this right. Everybody who does not come to Christ has a reason. They'll give you an excuse. They'll tell you why it is they can't come. Why they can't follow him. Why they don't believe the Bible. They're looking for any resource, any excuse. Well, you know, science says. Well, you know, Darwin has proven, though Darwin hasn't proven much at all. Darwin has proven you can make up a theory and then die. Jesus proved you can die and raise again. Okay, that'd be a difference, but, but rather than believe Jesus, I'm going to believe Darwin, because everybody has an excuse. Sure, I'd like to come. Yeah, I'd like to be there. I'd like to be part of the group. I'd like to be. Yeah, I'd like to. But I'm busy right now. My life is complicated right now. I got things to do. Everybody's got an excuse. Their excuse is, yeah, he's got this teaching. Yeah, he's got these miracles. But don't we know him? We at least know his family. He's from this region, and there's just no way. That the Son of God is in my neighborhood. He came from the same place I came from. And look at me. So they say, is this not the carpenter's son? He's the son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon. Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. I said it was just their excuse Mark said they took offense, even though they know that he's teaching in a way they've never heard. 
And even though they've seen miracles that they've never seen, they're offended by him because he makes himself the center of the religious universe. What you do with me determines your eternity. And they decide, no, that's too egocentric. That's too self-glorifying. No, men don't deserve that kind of glory. And they're right, men don't. But the Son of God does. And so they say, but we know you. We know your family. We know your mom. I'll tell your mom on you. I know your mom. <laughs> I know you're the son of the carpenter. I know we, we got your brothers. By the way, remember that up until this point, his brothers didn't believe him. So they say, well, we know your brothers, and they don't think you're anything special. So what is this you're saying? What is this that you're doing? And they took offense at him, and Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. That was the history of the prophets. If you look back over the Old Testament and you look at the ways that they were ultimately killed in Jerusalem, they were killed by their own people. They were killed by people who knew them. And Jesus says, yeah, naturally you'd want to do that to me because you're my hometown folks and this is the way it's always been with prophets. That the family of the prophet, the, the neighbors of the prophet, the people who claim to really know what he is and what he's about, they've always resented the prophets. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. I think we could take that by extension and say, I have through the years known a lot of very influential preachers, preachers who I have a lot of love and respect for. And then I've met their families. <laughs> and their families don't think they're anything too great and don't really give them the kind of honor that I would give them because they know them. If you ask my brother about me, we used to share a room and share a bed. Till my dad slept with my brother, came to me and apologized and said, you'll get your own bed immediately. Uh, <laughs> thought I'd throw that in. Okay, uh, you laugh at that story. I can tell that story because I know him. He knows me. And so if you say to him, tell me about Jim, which has happened recently with my new wife. And we've met with Ed and Ed has decided to tell stories. On Jim. Surprise. Surprise? <laughs> Why? Because he knows me that well. So I'm not assuming that any of you think of me outside of as a pastor. I'm not trying to self-glorify. But you're here every Sunday because I'm the Bible teacher. And you come here to learn things from me. But my family, they don't look at me that way. They don't think of me that way. And I'm sure that's true for all of you. When you say, I'm elect. God chose me from before the foundation of the world. They'll say stuff to you like, well, what makes you so special? Oh, or you think you're always right, Mr. Bible guy. <laughs> Try to stand up for it. There was way too much agreement and laughter to that. But <laughs> yeah, just try to stand up for the things of Christ, and people are going to come back at you like, like what, you? 
You, we know you. We know what you're like. We know what you did. We know where you've been. We know. Well, essentially, that's what they were doing. Wait, we know you. We know your family. You're from around here. Now, if he had been a stranger, and they didn't know where he came from, and they didn't know his people, and he showed up, and he was doing these kind of miracles, that would be a whole other thing. But because they know him and know his family, they're like, well, you're nothing special. And they're offended at him. And then the next phrase says, and he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Okay, wait. You can't say he did no miracles and follow it up with, but he healed a bunch of people. So apparently what Mark is getting at is that it wasn't that he didn't have the power to heal. He still did it. The authority didn't leave him. He still had it. But for some reason, Mark would write that he couldn't or didn't do miracles in that area. Why? Well, according to the word of faith, folks, they'll tell you that the lack of faith by the people made it impossible for Jesus to do the miracles because Jesus was dependent on the faith of the people in order to do the miracles. That's not right. We know that's not right. I've already demonstrated to you that's not right. So these people don't believe. Why is it? Well, that question plagued me. Janine will tell you, I was up all night. It's like 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning when I went, oh, wait, <laughs> I get it. Okay, let's see if I can frame this for you. Mark has already told us that Jesus went around speaking in parables. And why did he speak in parables? So that the scripture would be fulfilled that said that the Jews were going to be blinded and they weren't going to hear with their ears and they weren't going to see with their eyes. Therefore, Jesus said, I speak to them in parables lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and are converted and I should heal them. In other words, Jesus made sure not to speak clearly the things of God to the people who were meant to stay in blindness. You got it? Why didn't he do miracles among them? What do the miracles demonstrate? That he's the son of God. If they had said, we don't believe you, and he went, oh yeah, watch this. And then pulled out a couple unbelievable miracles, that's going to convince them. That's going to demonstrate to them that he is who he says he is. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. But because they were in unbelief and he was going to leave them in their unbelief, he didn't do the very thing that would have testified that he was God. I think that's why he, quote unquote, couldn't do miracles. It wasn't that he didn't have the power to do it. It's that he was restricted from doing it in order to leave them in their lack of faith. Because he still healed a few sick people, so he still had the power, he still had the ability, he still had the authority. But verse 6 says, he wondered, he marveled at their unbelief. That means that their unbelief was extraordinary. Their unbelief was beyond credulity. Their unbelief shouldn't have existed given who he was in their midst, the miracles he was doing, the fact that they know the miracles and they've heard the teaching, and nevertheless, they don't believe, and he wondered at it. And yet, he left them in that state, and he was going around 
to all the villages teaching, teaching, teaching. There, you see the contrast? You see the faith of Jairus and the woman with the issue of blood. Faith, faith, faith. Jesus saying to Jairus, believe, believe, have faith. I know what I'm doing. And then he goes into his own hometown and among his own people, and there's no faith and there's no miracles. Not because of inability, but because they are going to remain in their lack of belief. Understand? Questions. I saw your hand up, Sandy. Yeah, you, um, God used you to help me understand something. I've been wondering for a long time. Um, you recall when um, this apostle asked him to, to increase their faith, and he told them that, that they had a faith of a mustard seed. Well, that, what, what you taught helped me understand that it wasn't their faith that mattered. It was that God chose to heal or not, or choose to do certain things or not. Yeah, because they assumed that they had faith. So he chose the smallest of all seeds, the most minuscule of seeds, and said, if you even had, if you could muster up within yourself even the least little bit of faith, you'd tell that mountain to move, and it would move. You're not moving mountains. That's a demonstration. You don't have that little bit of faith. So he continued to make himself the authority where faith was concerned. He's the author and the finisher. Yeah. yeah. Yes, ma'am. When you, I just want to clarify, when you were saying it would be... Are you under the impression that I can hear you? <laughs> Sorry. Um, when you were saying how uh, when he was asking his apostles, who do they say I am, and you were saying like, he was looking for a specific answer, are you using that as just a phrase? to try to say what because Je Jesus already knew what people were saying about him right because mm -hmm. he still knew everything even though he was man mm -hmm. so he was just getting them is that what you're saying is that he was trying to get them to admit yes okay. yeah I just wanted to he was making sure that they knew what they were up to mm -hmm. yeah anything else yes sir it occurred to me while you were reading this that this woman who had the issue of blood for 12 years was ceremonially unclean. No doubt. Which means she couldn't go so into the temple. She couldn't go to the crowd. Yeah. She certainly shouldn't be touching Jesus. She was as unclean as, as women get, especially according to the law. During that time for women, they are ceremonially unclean. She would have remained there for 12 years and couldn't go into the temple. I mean, her whole life was turned upside down. And as unclean, you're right should not have been touching the Holy One. And yet, look at how far he stooped down to heal the unclean, the undeserving. I mean, that's, that's remarkable grace, remarkable love. Good point. Anything else? Good conversation. I appreciate that. By the way, I, I think we all owe Jace a round of applause for knowing the difference between dead and sleeping. <laughs> Say goodbye to the Internet congregation, goodbye. Bye. including apparently Troy's dad. Bye, Troy's dad. So, yeah, okay. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. 
please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates and our ever-expanding archives. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His sovereign grace.